It's time, it's time. Check your watch. Let's get it. It's title game time. The Chiefs, Pats, Rams, and Saints are going to vie for their shot at the Lombardi. Kyrie Irving did something I find incomprehensible. LeBron is working his way back from injury, and that's apparently amazing because he has the best body in NBA history. Really? The NBA all-time list is a tough one to organize. I've finally figured out my number five. I'll tell you who that is and a lot more. Sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 12 of The Format. now that the final four in the NFL aka the conference title games feature four of the best teams in the league arguably the four best teams in the league the Saints Rams Chiefs and Patriots side note isn't it always the Patriots at this time of year which is why I have a hard time uh, understanding why people would pick against Brady and Belichick but we'll get to that later they're all ready to punch their tickets to the Super Bowl is this the year of finalies for two of the best coaches the game's ever seen? Does Andy Reid finally get his team to the big one and hoist the trophy? Is this the year that New England has a playoff road game and Belichick finally gets them to a Super Bowl without home field advantage all the way through? On the NFC side, it's the battle of the Shawns, two offensive gurus in McVay and Peyton. Who's going to come out on top of two very evenly matched teams? Is it going to be a matter of coaching? Or is it going to be a matter of what players make the big play? Is it going to be about offense? Is it going to be about Breeze, the legend, and greatest statistical quarterback of all time? Is it going to be about the Rams' new version of Thunder and Lightning with C.A.J. Anderson and Todd Gurley? Or is it going to be the defense? We've heard the old adage, defense wins championships. Is it going to be Aqib Tlaib or Marcus Peters going against Michael Thomas? Would it be Aaron Donald going after Drew Brees? Or will he get double-teamed the whole game and leave Ndamukong Su to wreak havoc? A lot of things to consider here. These two are both incredible matchups I'm really forward, looking forward to seeing. It's also pretty cool that they're both rematches of excellent regular season games, and I'll mention something about that later on. The Saints and the Rams played each other in Week 8, with New Orleans coming out on top of that one 45-35. That was a pretty good shootout. It was an entertaining matchup. Maybe it showed some things that we can consider for this game, but maybe not. Overall, stat-wise, that game was really pretty even. Uh, first downs, the Rams had 23, Saints had 31. Uh, rushing yards, the Rams did a pretty decent good job of running the football, 19 carries for 92 yards. Probably could have committed to the run just a little bit more. 
Meanwhile, New Orleans really ran the football well, 34 carries for 141 yards. And that probably, not probably, was a big part of, you know, getting to the win for New Orleans because they got two touchdowns out of the run game versus one touchdown from the run for the Rams. Um, Jared Goff, 391 yards through the air and three touchdowns. Drew Brees, 346 and four touchdowns. Uh, you know, total yards, Rams 483, Saints 487. You're seeing a trend here. This was a very evenly matched game. They both only had one turnover. Uh, they both were minimally penalized. The Rams four times for 32 yards, Saints two times for 20 yards. So well coached and well disciplined. A uh, big thing to look at here, third down conversions for the Rams was uh, three of eight while the Saints were seven of 12. So the Saints defense did a better job of getting the Rams off the field on third downs. And with the run game uh, disparity with the Rams running for uh, 92 yards and the Saints for 141, the Saints were able to hold on to the ball for about seven minutes longer in total, which kind of gives you an advantage generally in uh, trying to win any game. I think probably the biggest takeaway here, as I mentioned, is that the Rams were held under 100 yards rushing on the game, even though they had a very respectable yards per carry average. And I also mentioned the third down conversion rate, key defensive stat for any team. Those numbers do make a big difference. Now, for most of the season, the Saints were an offensive juggernaut until they ran into the Cowboys and lost a 13-10 slugfest with them at Jerry World, right? And realistically, the Saints haven't been the same since averaging just a shade under 19 points per game. So I don't know if necessarily with that Cowboys win, that was the blueprint for how to go about beating the Saints and slow that offense down. But it seems like since that game, again, they haven't quite been the same. And oddly enough, for a team that's been known for offense in the Sean Payton, Drew Brees era, they've turned mostly to a strong defense to carry them since then. So this is really a tough matchup to look at and figure out and normally I'd ride with the Saints here, having a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer quarterback who also honestly hasn't really looked the same since the Cowboys game and one of the greatest offensive coaches of all time in Sean Payton. Also, the Superdome, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, is a nightmare for opposing teams being so incredibly loud. So that's definitely a great thing going in their favor. That said, I'm going with the Rams here. I'm choosing the Rams, yeah. I was honestly so impressed by the way they were able to run the football against that Cowboys front last week. And I think they may have really hit on getting back to basics and winning playoff games in the tried and true way. And what's the tried and true way in the NFL? Play defense, run the football. Yes, of course you have to have a quarterback that's able to make the throws, and they have that. But playing defense and stopping the run and running the football on your own end, that's the way to do it. Um... The defensive front for the Rams did a great job shutting down Ezekiel Elliott last week, and they'll have to come with a similar effort this week on stopping uh, Alvin Kamara, all right? And also, when you have a guy like Aaron Donald, who's basically unblockable one-on-one, -on -one, he commands double teams constantly, and it makes it easier for a lot of other guys to have opportunities to make big plays. Dante Fowler could be in prime position to have a big game rushing the passer off the edge, and Ndamukong Sue could be uh, just a monster in stopping the run or doing what he's done pretty much his whole career in terms of pushing and collapsing the pocket back on the pass of being Drew Brees. 
I feel like as long as Jared Goff doesn't make the big mistake, he can make enough plays in the passing game to win this thing. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I have the Rams close, and the younger Sean, McVay, I think is going to get his first shot at a Super Bowl. I have the Rams winning this game close. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. I said I wouldn't predict games anymore, but hey, why not? Let's give it a shot. I'll just say, if you're going to make a bet and you hear this before game time, <laughs> don't make the bet based on what I'm saying. I won't be held responsible. Anyways, heading over to the AFC. For me, this is probably the big one, right? So let's let, let's talk about the Chiefs and the Patriots. But before we get into that particular game, let me attack a prevailing narrative that's really bugging me about the Patriots and their unrivaled run of success in the NFL. All right. You know, again, I mentioned it before on this pod and on previous pods. One of my biggest focuses in putting out content for you guys is debunking narratives because I can't stand them. And and I think it's I think it's lazy journalism and lazy sports media to just run with narratives. I get it. It gets clicks. And, you know, at the end of the day, one of your biggest things is is to get clicks and, and engage and entertain your audience. But. I just think it's lazy and out-of-the-box thinking and going against narratives sometimes is what's necessary. Let's keep it honest here. Anyway, um, for everyone who isn't a Pats fan, right, they take shots at New England, denigrating them by saying they take advantage of a weak division. So let's talk about that and uh, analyze it using some common sense here. Number one. Has anyone thought about the fact that the AFC East wasn't always terrible, right? A big part of the AFC East uh, declining was the NFL divisional realignment, which took the Colts out of the division. Otherwise, you would have had Brady and Manning playing each other twice a year, every year, right? You would have had those two outstanding teams vying consistently for supremacy in the division. And then when Manning left, you would have had those couple of down years. Then in comes Andrew Luck. Okay. Another big part of the AFC's declining is that because New England is so good, they've caused instability in the other franchises that are trying to catch them. You've seen numerous coaching changes throughout the division. You've seen continual searches for a franchise quarterback instead of teams having the opportunity to develop because they're behind the eight ball when it comes to the Patriots. So the Patriots literally are the reason why the division is not that good. And think about this. If the AFC East is so bad, then other teams are usually going to be early draftees versus the Pats who always draft late. So if your other teams chock full of early first round draft picks, you should be better. That's not the Patriots fault. These other teams are in position to get better, but because of the Patriots, they're not improving. You can't blame New England for that. It really doesn't make any sense to me. Next, this season alone, the Patriots went 5-0 and against playoff teams, right? So let's think about this. Okay, I get it. The division is garbage, but the good teams you play, you almost always beat them, okay? Also, here's another crazy one. Even if you lowered, and this is crazy, even if you lowered the Patriots winning percentage against the rest of the AFC East division to just 500, just middle of the pack, 500 since 2001, 
they would still have the most wins in the NFL since 2001. Come on, let's stop it. Another narrative. The Patriots aren't a great road team, and that gives the advantage to the Chiefs. It is true, no question. The Patriots have never made the Super Bowl in a season where they played a road playoff game. And there's some interesting facts to show why that might be overblown. Since 2001, I love this, since 2001, NFL teams on the road in the regular and postseasons against teams that made the playoffs, the NFL average winning percentage is 24%. So it's not just the Patriots who may have a tough time on the road in big games. It's every team in the NFL, period, big game or not, does not traditionally play well on the road against quality opposition. So if the NFL average is 24% in the regular and postseason since 2001 against teams that made the playoffs, any guesses on what the Patriots' winning percentage in those situations is? I'll help you out. It's 54%. That means they are 30% better than the rest of the league in those situations. It is by far the best in the entire league. The next closest is the Steelers at about 44%, still under 500. Anyways, you're kind of starting to get the point by now. I'm not a Pats fan, but I do believe Tom Brady is unquestionably the GOAT, and so is Belichick. And of course, back to the big running theme of this pod, I gotta say it again. I hate narratives, and I will debunk them at every possible turn. Anyways, back to this AFC title game, because this is going to be a good one. As we know, the Chiefs went to Foxborough earlier in the season, and they left with their first loss of the season by a close score of 43-40. So much like the uh, AFC, uh, excuse me, much like the NFC championship game, this was a really close one for the most part across the board, statistically, right? Um, if you look at it, uh, 446 to 500 in favor of New England in terms of uh, total yardage in the game. Um, Pat Mahomes threw for f 352 yards and four touchdowns. Tom Brady threw for 340 yards and one touchdown. Now, the difference is Mahomes threw two big picks and uh, Brady threw none. Um, Another big difference in the game, Kansas City wasn't able to run the ball exceptionally well with 17 carries for 94 yards. Now, that's a respectable average, but it's still not enough if you're having that type of success. You got to continue to run the ball to try and uh, keep the ball away from Brady and the Patriots offense and give yourself an opportunity. Um, in that game, New England ran the ball 38 times for 173 yards and three touchdowns right so that's the formula again um kansas city lost the turnover battle two to one they turned it over twice to new england's one and on the third down conversions kansas city was only four of ten while brady and the pats were seven of 13 so again staying on the field and getting the opposing team off the field makes a huge difference and also, a big thing I noticed, Kansas City was penalized five times for 58 yards. Not terrible, but not great. And New England, no penalties in that game. All right? So, again, a lot of the stats were pretty close. And just like the NFC, the big differential was the run game. 
Um, clearly, the big issue was the inability for Kansas City to stop uh, New England's run game. We know that pretty much all season, they've been porous defensively, so I don't know uh, how much you would have expected in terms of Kansas City's defense, but they've been hanging their hat on their offense to carry them through games. Uh, so we saw Kansas City lose the turnover battle, and we know that in most NFL games, when you lose the turnover battle, you're going to lose the game. But especially against the Patriots, you have to play pretty much perfect to beat them because they aren't going to beat themselves. You just can't count on that, right? Another testament to the greatness of Belichick and just the discipline and preparation of his team is that New England wasn't penalized even once. You simply, as I just said, cannot expect the Patriots to beat themselves. They're not going to do it. Now, on the flip side, it's also a testament to the Chiefs' weaponry offensive coaching and playmaking that even with the run game being relatively controlled and having two turnovers and having the five penalties they still only lost this game by three points they have to be thinking if we can go into this game Sunday clean up a few things we'll win for me the two biggest keys here and probably the two biggest keys in any game again get pressure on Brady up the middle if there's any one thing over time that's proven to be Brady's kryptonite, it's pressure up the middle. He's not a guy that can turn proverbial water into wine when the play breaks down. So pressure up the gut really gives him problems. And we have saw that in the Super Bowl twice when the Giants beat them with their pass rush. Secondly, the Chiefs really need to shore up the third down defense. In that first game, New England was second of 13 on third down. The Chiefs were one of the worst third down defenses in the league and if you can't get the other team off the field number one your defense is going to get tired number two you're going to allow the offense to extend drives and get closer to putting points on the board if you can't get Brady off the field very simply he will beat you that's all there is to it so here we go even though it's never happened before I really believe that this is the time I just can't bet against Brady and Belichick at this time of year and I have the Pats winning this one in another nail-biter. Something to think about in regards to both of these games now. The last five times that teams met in the regular season and met again in the conference title game, the teams that won in the regular season won the conference title game all five times. So taking into account everything I just gave you on these two games, here again are my picks. A Super Bowl matchup of boy wonder Sean McVay and his Rams versus the Riddler of Coaches, Bill Belichick. Let's see if Sean McVay can solve that enigma. So if we're getting into some NBA, where else should we start but with James Harden? I can be honest right now. I'm not the biggest James Harden fan. Never have been. But what he's doing right now is absolutely ridiculous. Without another big-time scorer to count on, James Harden is carrying his team in a way that we've rarely seen in NBA history. Clearly, the biggest part of what he's doing is him arguably having the greenest of green lights that we've ever seen, at least by a guard. Some of the evidence for that 
is his recent game, which he shot one of 17 on threes, but still finished with 38 points. Now we know Mike D'Antoni loves the three ball and he trusts James Harden completely. So hey, if you got a coach that's gonna let you continue to throw him up when you're having a game like that, go for it. I think the second big part of what he's doing has to be the utter and complete lack of defense in the NBA, something I've lamented constantly. And the fact that he's getting every whistle, no matter how nonsensical. Regardless, the guy is scoring almost at will, and it's crazy to watch what he's doing. He now has 18 straight games with 30 or more points, which is a post-merger record in the NBA. Over the last 20 games, James Harden is averaging a ridiculous 41 points per game, which is fifth all-time in terms of length for a 40-point-per-game scoring average, just behind Rick Barry, Kobe Bryant, Elgin Baylor, and, of course, the Big Dipper himself, Will Chamberlain, who somehow managed to average 40 over an astounding 515 No games. way, no how. Yes, Rob Parker, Wilt did do that. Regardless, what Harden is doing is absolutely incredible. So what I'm worried about in terms of Harden, number one, is he going to have the legs come playoff time to continue to carry this team? And how is he kind of going to react when everyone gets healthy and you have to deal with other guys needing the ball, other guys needing shots? It's definitely something to 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 look at and to think about because I think it's going to be interesting to see how he reacclimates with his teammates. Now, even though he's taking a lot of shots, he is a guy that will pass the ball. We've seen him lead the league in scoring and assists, so it's not like he's a total chuck. He will pass the rock, but I want to see off of this time of historical type of uh, scoring binge that he's on, how he kind of reacclimates to having the ball more out of his hands and uh, having other guys who, who need uh, good shots. So the other thing I'm worried about here is we live in a prisoner of the moment society. And based on what Harden's doing, I guarantee you that there are already people who will say that James Harden is the greatest rocket of all time. I got a big gripe with that. But I'll get into that guy later on. So, Kyrie Irving. Really, Kyrie? Really? I'm seriously shaking my head at this guy. I cannot understand for the life of me the moves that he's making. And when I say the moves that he's making, obviously I'm referring to him recently coming out in the media, I guess after venting frustration at his uh, Celtic teammates for the up and down way that they're playing this season after being heavily favored to win the East, coming out, uh, bashing them in the media, and then making the point of telling everyone that he had to call LeBron James and apologize for the way he acted as a younger player when LeBron was trying to lead him. Everyone in the sports media is saying it takes a big man to call and apologize. Meh. Okay, maybe it does. For the life of me, I just can't understand it. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't respect this move, and I don't respect it for a number of reasons. Um, even if you felt the need, Kyrie, to do this, why put it out in the media? What are you doing? What do you hope to gain by that? By doing this, you do realize that you're giving more fodder to the LeBron-centric media who will now conveniently forget that regardless of any of this, you, Kyrie, still wanted to get away from LeBron because he's a diva and a drama king. You, you do understand that you're basically hurting yourself and your own image, right? 
you were already decried and denigrated for leaving LeBron for how dumb you were for leaving a guy who's giving you a chance to win a championship every year when realistically as much as that was the case on the other side of the coin you were giving him just as much of an opportunity to try and win a championship but you know of course no one's going to remember that because that goes against the LeBron narrative also we know other players have had and will have the chance to join LeBron Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, just to name a few. And it don't it doesn't and didn't look like they had any interest in doing so. So what does that say? Are we gonna conveniently forget about that sports media? You're not helping anything, Kyrie. So here's the other angle. Did you do this to try and take a subliminal shot or send a message to your teammates? You're doing that through the media, Kyrie? How about this? You're supposed to be the man, right? Pull them all in a meeting, players only or whatever. Talk to these guys. These are all grown men. I can guarantee you they do not appreciate the way that you're going about this. And I can tell you, this is a real soft move for me. Now, if I wasn't on a podcast, I might use another word. But this is a real soft move for me. And I said it earlier. I don't respect it at all. If I were his teammate, I'd lose a lot of respect for him and the way he went about this. Um, Is he greasing the skids? for a possible escape from the Celtics after saying in front of everyone in Boston that he planned to re-sign with them? The contract is on the table. He hasn't re-signed it yet. It's a super max deal. And honestly, um, I was a guy that was never overly enthused with the Kyrie Irving deal to start with because if you look at it, the year before the trade, I guess this would be two years ago now, Kyrie Irving and... Isaiah Thomas, Isaiah Thomas went healthy. That's the same player. The only difference is six inches. Neither of them wants to defend. Both of them have excellent handle. Both of them can shoot the rock. And both of them can score at a high clip in Brad Stevens' offense. They're the same player minus about six inches in height. I didn't understand for the life of me why Danny Ainge made that deal. Other than I guess he was extremely concerned about Isaiah Thomas's health. And he wanted to get out under the situation where he might have had to pay him. Now, he wouldn't have had to give Isaiah Thomas Supermax money. So I wouldn't have been too worried about that. You could have worked out something where the guy got paid, the guy got healthy, he came back, continued to play well for you. But instead, you make the deal for Kyrie Irving. I just, I, I, I don't get it. Other than maybe you were hoping to weaken the Cavaliers and Eastern Conference rival by taking away LeBron's direct number two. Whatever, I didn't like it. I wasn't a fan of the trade. I'm not a huge fan of Kyrie as a player. He's very talented. He can shoot the ball. Clearly, he can make some big shots, as he did in the finals. One of the biggest final shots of all times to kind of clinch the championship for Cleveland. We know he's tremendous at getting to the rim. Again, he doesn't defend. He's not particularly physical as a big guard. And obviously, we've seen from his recent behavior and his own commentary he seems to lack the mental fortitude to be a leader. So uh, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, I'll tell you what. He may be trying to grease his skids to get out of there. And if he were to somehow end up back with LeBron, <laughs> I'd like it even less. I would think that's pathetic. And what little respect I may have for him would entirely evaporate. I'll tell you what, though. If he does leave, I do like it because then... You can uh, make a move, get Anthony Davis, and still maybe make another run at another big-time player who may be available. 
So that's me. Um, Moving on to the Lakers, right? You talk about the Celtics, I guess you got to talk about the Lakers. That's how it's been in NBA history pretty much from the beginning, right? But anyway, uh, the Lakers are kind of struggling right now, and people are telling you that they're struggling because they lost a big chunk of production, which is rational, right? LeBron James is uh, out. He's been out for a couple weeks now. He's had that injured groin, and this is probably the first real injury of LeBron James's career. And um, there's some luck to that, of course, not getting injured as a professional athlete. There's clearly luck involved there. But there's also the component that LeBron spends a tremendous amount of time, money, and diligence on his body. And, you know, that's undeniable. He does a fantastic job, always has, of taking care of his body in order to try and keep it in peak condition to be able to play as well as possible for as long as possible. And there's a lot of respect due for that. You've often heard the sports media say, you know, LeBron has the best body in NBA history. Uh, I guess in terms of the way he takes care of it, the way it functions, etc. So, of course, uh, more bronze-centric hyperbole made me take a minute and think. Best body in NBA history. Did the best job of taking care of his body in NBA history. Okay. So, I'm not even going to bring up Michael Jordan, who, um, other than, in his first go-around with the Bulls, other than when he broke his foot in his second year, never really got hurt. Um, I'm not even going to bring that up. So let's move on. Uh, best body in NBA history. LeBron, you're not it. I'm sorry. I know. I hate LeBron. Right, right, right. But again, you know, one of the biggest things I love to do on this show is debunk narratives. So here we go. I'm going to tell you best body in NBA history is Karl Malone. as by a landslide. Karl Malone played 19 years in the NBA. True power forward in a much more physical, defense-oriented, and physically demanding National Basketball Association. Um, Karl Malone, obviously, we know he was probably just a little bigger than LeBron, maybe about uh, 6'9", 6'10", uh, 260, 270, just basically uh, Adonis-type body carved out of stone, cock diesel, right? And in a 19-year career, get this, Carl Malone played less than 80 games twice. Twice. And he only averaged less than 20 points twice. His rookie year and his final year, the injury-ravaged season with the Lakers. And so the reason I bring this up is Carl Malone in his Hall of Fame career, which, by the way, led to being the second-leading scorer in NBA history, he didn't take games off to rest when he wasn't injured in order to quote unquote preserve his body for the postseason. No, Carl Malone was getting hacked. He was getting banged. He was he was bumping, you know, he was really feeling all the physical play and the really physically demanding nature of the NBA throughout that time period and of being an NBA big. But that wasn't an excuse for him. He went out there and earned his check every single night, even though he knew he was one of the most integral parts, along with John Stockton, of his team's success. There was none of this uh, DNP coach's decision or, uh, you know, healthy scratch. That didn't exist. He would go out there and get it done. And that's over a 19-year career. And again, this was the era where there was real 
physicality in the NBA. Karl Malone went out there and he did that. I bring this up to say, you know, they talk about uh, LeBron James having the best body in NBA history, so on and so forth. It's not true. Can we stop falling victim to narrative and media spin? Thank you. Before we get up out of here, you know what it is. It's time for the Brutes Breakdown. So with all the talk of LeBron and MJ and Mount Rushmore's and who ranks where on the all-time list in the NBA history, I was thinking about my all-time list. So let me talk to you about that for a little while. My top five in the NBA has to be, in this order, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and as my fifth, one that's unlikely that you don't usually hear mentioned this high, but I'm going with Hakeem Olajuwon. Now, there's a lot of players who probably could make it in that five to 10 slot. And those five spots are really, really tough in terms of who you put in there and, and at what position. So I get it if there's, you know, uh, a lot of disagreement with that. Um, I've seen a lot of different lists and a lot of different players do go in those spots. So uh, I'm perfectly fine with that and I get it. But for me though, number five has to be Dream. And let me tell you why. Very simply, I have him as my greatest big man of all time. He's definitely a top 10 player. Let me give you some numbers. He's 22 points per game for his career. That's not necessarily outstanding in terms of when you look at career scoring averages based on the era that we're in now and how guys are pretty much scoring at will. Uh, number one, he was a big, so he wasn't shooting threes. Number two, he was playing in the greatest big man era of all time, and I'll get to that later. And number three, he was dealing with a lot of <laughs> defense, which, of course, you don't see much of. Now, um, he also averaged 11 rebounds a game for his career, 3.1 blocks per game all time, and in that category, he is the NBA leader. He has three seasons of more than four blocks per game, you don't see anyone getting more than four blocks per game. Now, part of that could have to do with uh, way more threes being shot, but it also just has to do with, you know, again, the NBA does not want anyone playing defense and has configured the rules as such. Um, he has nine different seasons over three blocks per game. He, for his career, averages 1.7 steals per game as a center. As a center, he has four seasons at over two steals per game. And get this, as a big, he is eighth all time in steals. And for comparison, the only other non-wing player in the top 10 in steals per game in their career is Karl Malone. And he played three more years than Dream did. No other center is even in the top 25 of that category, steals. He's 11th all time in scoring. He was top 10 when he retired. And he's 13th all time in rebounds. Now, for all the players that have played in the NBA throughout history, being in or near the top 10 in any major statistical category is a hell of an accomplishment. But just to put it in some more context, Hakeem Olajuwon ended his career in the top 10 all-time in blocks, scoring, rebounding, and steals. He's the only player in NBA history to retire in the top 10 of all four of those categories. Now he's 11th all-time in rebounding. He's been pushed out of the top 10. But regardless... To be 
in the top 10 of all four of those major statistical categories and to be that as a big is incredible here's some more numbers he's the only player ever with 200 blocks and 200 steals in the same season he's the only player ever to win the regular season mvp the finals mvp and the defensive player of the year in the same season he's also the only player ever to lead his team in four of the five main statistical categories for eight straight seasons points rebounds steals blocks he also is the only player to lead his team in points rebounds assists blocks and steals through a playoff run that resulted in winning the nba championship all these are reasons why i believe hakeem olajuwon is the fifth best player of all time he doesn't get the credit he's due but that doesn't mean he didn't deserve it so interestingly enough a lot of times when I talk about LeBron not carrying his team enough and then they point to, look at what LeBron is doing. What more do you expect him to do? Well, in a situation like that, I guess I'd tell you to just close your eyes, take a deep breath, go to sleep, and have a beautiful basketball dream. So that's it for the Bruce Breakdown and for today's episode of The Format. So if you want to get at me, tell me where I was wrong. Tell me something I forgot. Tell me something you liked. Offer suggestions about topics for the next pod. Hit me uh, on Twitter at Mr. Many Facts. That's at Mr. Many Facts. And hit me on Instagram at The Format Podcast. If you're listening in on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please, please don't forget to rate and review. If you like the pod and you have friends, family, coworkers, whoever that you know that are sports fans, share the pod with them. Text him the link, have him give it a listen. And I got something new for you too. Check out me and my guy Chase G as we give you our radio show, The Dribble Handoff with Chase and Bruce. You can find that at anchor.fm forward slash dribble dash handoff. That's anchor.fm forward slash dribble dash handoff. We're going to give you some great NBA and NFL content, also some uh, college football content. Obviously, right now, college is a little slow. And we're focused on the NFL with uh, the playoffs in full swing. But after that, we'll definitely get into a lot of great NBA material for you. Uh, Chase is my guy, and uh, he and I really have some great back and forth. And um, you can hear us going at it. So check that out as we uh, continue to attempt to educate and entertain you. All right? So check that out. Enjoy. And that's it. I'm out.